we have you know we haven't had lyrics and so I haven't gotten to sing together enough. Um, let me just sing this part of this classic hymn, and if you know it, please sing it with me. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily. Teach us this beautiful surrender, this losing of our lives that we might gain everything. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, most of you know that before I went to seminary, I worked as a campus minister at uh, Florida State and FAMU and TCC. I started out at Florida State, and uh, my first year at Florida State, I built a relationship with this film school student who was from California. His name was Jonah. And um, Jonah was ethnically Jewish. And, uh, and he actually did spend some time growing up in the synagogue. But it was, it was more of a cultural thing for him than like a religious thing. You know, it, did, it wasn't necessarily what he believed. And um, the cool thing is that the first time Jonah came to InterVarsity, we just so happened to be preaching on the passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, I will give you no sign except the sign of Jonah. Which Pastor John just preached about a few weeks ago. It's about the resurrection of Jesus. Just as Jonah was in the belly three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, and then he'll he'll rise. He'll 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 resurrect. And uh, I remember going up to him afterwards and meeting him, and I didn't know that he wasn't a Christian. And I said, um, he said his name was Jonah. I said, well, man, this was your night. And he had this very serious look on his face. He's like, he's like, yeah, I think it was. He said, I just went to the Catholic Church um, a few days ago, and I just went in there. I've never been in a Catholic Church. And they said uh, they actually did that same reading in their church. And he's like, and the priest even said, you know, it's been three years since we've read this passage, and I really want you guys to listen to what's being said. And I was like, man, uh, the Holy Spirit is after this guy, Jonah. Um, at one point, he and I started meeting weekly, to look at the life and teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. And I was amazed by this guy Jonah's insights. I mean, I thought, this guy's already a deeper person than me, and he's not even a disciple of Jesus yet. Um, and just little by little, he started believing in God, and then he became drawn to Jesus, and he was learning to pray, and he was considering baptism. And one day, he said to me, frankly, um, I wish there was a way that I could become a Christian and still be Jewish. And I told him, I thought there was a way. I said, you know, you're not, you're not a Hindu or something like that. I explained that Jesus' first disciples would still have considered themselves Jewish. 
But they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and all that came with that. And that seemed to comfort him a lot, but he still had a problem. He said, Taylor, he said, if I get baptized, he's like, I know this is like irrational or whatever, but if I get baptized, it will crush my parents. He said, it will be like for them that the Holocaust and all the persecutions that every Jew has faced down through the ages was in vain. That it all happened in vain. Now can you imagine the gravity of the decision of discipleship that was held before this young man, Joan? Here he was, loving Jesus, growing in faith, but knowing that becoming a Christian could cost him his family and all of his relationships back home. You know, for some of us, deciding to follow Jesus might mean greater peace with our parents. You know, our grandma finally stops bugging us. Um, but, you know, my friend Jonah's decision was a lot more like it was back in the first century. Jesus was an attractive figure, but following him could mean dividing your household, being thrown out of the synagogue. It could even lead you to an early death. So you had to count the cost. You had to count the cost for what it meant to follow Jesus. I want to read that gospel reading again for us this morning. Would you turn uh, today to Luke 14, 25 through 35? It's on page 874 in your Bible. says this, now great crowds accompanied him, accompanied Jesus. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. I remember one time I was reading this passage out loud at an intervarsity meeting and the person raised their hand in the middle of when I was reading and they said, uh, hold on one second, did you mean to say love? I said, no, no, listen, listen to Jesus. <laughs> If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Skipping down to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has. Renounce all that you have. If you don't do it, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer any use for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This is an incredibly challenging passage. Um, but its message is actually quite simple, is it not? Jesus is challenging all would-be disciples, both then and now, in three ways. First, to put our commitment to Jesus before anything else. Before family, before ourselves, before all we possess. Second, Jesus calls us to count the cost of following Him. To understand the ramifications of such a decision, given, given all that it costs, are we prepared 
to see that commitment through till the end. And third, Jesus calls us to be good salt, to have a genuine impact on the world instead of wasting our lives. So first, we're called to put our commitment to Jesus before anything else. Now, if you remember the context of this passage, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. He set his face toward that destiny. He's predicted it several times. So he's on his farewell tour, and he's teaching, and he's performing miracles, and before long, he's gathered a crowd, right? But he's no longer just Jesus of Nazareth. He's he's become Jesus Christ's superstar. And uh, it says in verse 25 that great crowds accompanied him. So he's got, he's got masses with him right now. And it's almost like Jesus looked at the crowds and thought, if following me has become this popular, I'm not sure that they truly understand. <laughs> so he clarifies to these crowds, and for all of us today, what the commitment to discipleship actually means. It says, and he turned to them and said to them, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This sounds like a great way to shrink a congregation to me. Tell people to hate their own mom or their kids. You got to do that in order to be a disciple. So what's going on here? Is Jesus just trying to be contrary for contrary sake? Is he like a, like a first century hipster? Well, on one hand, there's no denying that Jesus Christ is a controversialist. If you don't know that, you haven't read the Gospels. He rarely shied away from controversy. If there's an elephant in the room, he almost always names it. Right? And if the Pharisees have a sore spot, you know, concerning practicing the Sabbath, or hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, or, or even dinner etiquette, you know, just a few verses earlier in, in, in Luke 14, it's like Jesus puts his finger on that sore spot, and then he presses down hard. <laughs> I have a friend named Brian who was preaching through Luke years back. And when he came to this passage about hating your father and mother, it happened to be Father's Day. And uh, he didn't plan on it. They were just preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and it just sort of happened that way. And actually, his mom and dad were part of his congregation. And he had to work hard to convince his, con- convince his congregation that it wasn't intentional. You, you know why? Because last time he preached on that passage, guess what day it was? Mother's Day. (laughs) And he said both times he didn't plan on it. And he suggested to his congregation that morning, and Brian's a bit of a controversialist too, by the way, um, that instead of being a coincidence or just something he planned, maybe Jesus was trying to tell them something as a congregation. Certainly, Jesus is a provocative figure, and his words are meant to provoke a response. However, that doesn't mean that Jesus was being careless. Jesus is more committed to truth than he is to controversy. Jesus is the great physician. He's not some sort of crass television personality. The problem is is that the world is so out of step with the truth that the plain truth comes across as controversial, as salty, rather than sweet. That's why Jesus says in the Beatitudes that blessed, is, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
He says, rejoice and be glad, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in step with the prophets. If people don't like you, if people revile you, you're in step with the prophets. And then the next part, the very next part is connected to that. I wonder if you've ever made the connection. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can it become salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. In other words, there's a connection between our willingness to be hated for the sake of the truth and our own saltiness in the world, right? If we love the world so much that we're unwilling to speak the truth, if we're not willing to be hated for Jesus' sake, we will lose our effect in the world. So what's the truth that Jesus is trying to communicate here? What is it that we find so distasteful and offensive? <clears throat> Simply this. That if we love anything more than Jesus, we cannot be as his disciples. I say it again. If we love anything more than Jesus Christ, we cannot be his disciples. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Three times in this passage, in verse 26, 27, and 33, Jesus uses this phrase, cannot be my disciple. If we don't hate all relationships that challenge our devotion to him, we cannot be his disciples. If we don't deny ourselves and take up our cross, we cannot be his disciples. If we don't renounce all that we possess, we cannot be his disciples. One scholar writes, Jesus is not a minimalist when it comes to commitment. It's not how little one can give, that's the question, but how much God deserves. <coughs> how much God is worthy of. How can this be? How can such a popular religious figure, the most popular religious figure of all time, have such lofty expectations? Here's the reason. Because Jesus cannot cease to be who he really is. He cannot cease to be the Son of God. He cannot cease to be the rightful Lord of heaven and earth and the rightful Lord of our lives. The first commandment is the same today as it was back in Moses' day. You shall have no other gods before me. We can't be Jesus' disciples if we're trying to put some other master before him. How can the Son of God cease to occupy His rightful place as King above all? How can He yield His rightful place to idols without the universe collapsing in on itself? How can the Creator pretend that He's not the centerpiece of all? For my friend Jonah, it was actually the radical call of Jesus that was part of what convinced him that Jesus was truly Lord. So on the one hand, Jesus seemed like the humblest man that ever lived. But on the other hand, he seemed to have this extraordinarily high view of his own self-importance. So most religious teachers don't point to themselves. They point to God. But Jesus is self-referential. Moses claimed to be only a man and a poor public speaker at that. The Buddha claimed to be only a teacher. He said his teachings were like a raft that you ride on. And even after you get across the river, you don't need to bring that raft with you. You know, Muhammad claimed to be only a prophet. He claimed to be an instrument 
of revelation. Only Jesus Christ says, come to me, believe in me. I can forgive your sins. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. <coughs> Before Abraham was, I am. Friends, there's no one like Jesus. He has no rivals. Don't give your allegiance to another. No other faith, no possessions surpass his value. Please, are you kidding me? No father or mother or boyfriend or girlfriend nor anything else can take the rightful place of Jesus Christ. If anyone comes to me and does not hate these people, Jesus says, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now an astute reader of the Bible should ask the question, yeah, but what does Jesus mean by hate? I mean, elsewhere, doesn't Jesus say that we're supposed to honor our father and mother and love everyone, even our enemies? Furthermore, doesn't Paul say that husbands should love their wives and lay down their lives for them? Isn't Jesus contradicting himself and all the rest of Scripture? Or is something else at work? Well, in Jesus' cultural context, the word hate was commonly used as an idiom by rabbis for loving less. So to hate our father or mother or children doesn't really mean hate. It's to love that thing less than we love Jesus. In fact, that's exactly the way Jesus puts it <coughs> elsewhere in Matthew 10, 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Perhaps less shocking, but no more less challenging. So the point is, we're called to love and value our relationship with Jesus more than any other relationship. In fact, it shouldn't even be close. It shouldn't be like an Olympic stand thing where we got like a first, second, and third place, and you know what separates them is like milliseconds, right? No, our devotion to Jesus is not different by degrees, it's different in kind. We only have one master, one Lord. These other loves are so different, Jesus says. You could almost think of them not as lesser versus greater, but as love versus hate. That's the gap. And the truth is, when Jesus has his rightful place in our lives, really all those other relationships find their proper place. I remember when Carissa and I were going through marriage counseling, the pastor um, showed us this little diagram, and I use it too. Um, and it was this triangle. And on the bottom two, uh, two corners of the triangle um, was me and Carissa, and up at the top was, was God. And he, he pointed out that, um, that the mistake that married couples can make is they can think that the way to grow closer to each other is to move this way. And he says, but almost off, that, that, that almost never works. Actually, the way to move closer to each other is for both of us to come closer to the living God. That that's actually how we go closer to one another. So putting Jesus first is the best thing you can do for your husband. It's the best thing you can do for your wife. If they don't love the Lord, it might put you at odds in some great ways, but it's the best thing that you can do for them. And Jesus also helps us to be better mothers and fathers. The scripture says that God longs to turn hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. 
And I know there's a lot of broken marriages and especially a lot of absentee fathers in our country today. But I believe there would be three times as many if it wasn't for Jesus. And if there's something that's wrong in your marriage, or if there's some deficiency in your parenting, it's probably not because you love Jesus too much. That's my guess. When we lose our lives for Jesus, we often find all of our other relationships enriched and deepened. But the key thing is to put Jesus first and to suffer no competitors. The second thing that Jesus calls us to is to count the cost of falling. Count the cost for which of you, Jesus asks. Desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. And so Jesus is calling us to slow down, check our long-term intentions, check our hearts, see what our long-term intentions are for following him. Otherwise, if we end up building half a tower, we're going to look ridiculous, and we're going to disgrace him. The Greek phrase in verse 30 translated, this man, was a derogatory expression, highlighting somebody's foolishness. You know, um, I think if, if the Sopranos um, had a, you know, translation for the Greek, they might say, this guy over here. You believe this guy over here? That's the official translation. <laughs> the failure to finish the project leads to embarrassment. In a culture where avoiding public shame was actually extremely important, perhaps we're not properly ashamed of our own half-hearted attempts to be disciples of Jesus. If any of you have ever uh, visited Central Florida in like the last 16 years, you know, maybe on your way to Disney or something, and you've driven down I-4, you might have seen this large glass building um, in Altamont. Have any of you ever seen this? This large building, for a while it didn't have glass, but even though it has glass, it's still clearly unfinished. I mean, it's huge, the biggest building around for miles, and even though construction on this building started in my senior year of high school, it's still unfinished to this day. Largely unfinished. And for a while, they actually used to keep a crane there in case they were going to start work again. And, and, and the, the word around Central Florida was that it actually cost them several thousand dollars a month just to have the crane sitting there. And, um, well, you may not know this, but most of the locals from Central Florida do that. The building is the intended future home of the Super Channel. It's a Christian TV station. It's actually called the Majesty Building. And it's been majestically unfinished for 16 years. A few years ago, West Channel 2 wrote this article about the building. They said, if you've driven on Interstate 4 near Altamont Springs in the past 10 years, you've definitely seen it. The Majesty Building, the tallest building between Orlando and Daytona Beach, has been unfinished for about a decade. Super Channel President Claude Bowers broke ground on the building in 2001 and he believes it will one day serve as the new headquarters for his nonprofit religious network. He envisions retail shops, office space, and a, and a television studio. He has raised most of the funds for the project through donations. There have been 38 million in pledges. 
He is optimistic that the 10 million to 14 million still needed to finish an underground parking garage and the interior build-out will come from donations, meaning co possible completion in the next year and a half. Okay. About a year and a half later, after that article was written, another article was published by the Orlando Sentinel. And check out the opening line, it says, there's still no word on when the famous Majesty Tower, nicknamed the Eyesore on I-4, <laughs> still no word when it will be finished, even though the work started 14 years ago. Now, um, who knows, who can calculate? I can't say how much of a negative witness the Majesty Building has been uh, to the people of Central Florida, but I doubt very much that the eyesore on I-4, future home of the Super Channel, has had a positive impact for Christ in Central Florida. But what about our lives? Are we trying to build half a tower for Jesus? John Stott says that the Christian landscape is positively littered with builder's debris and the Christian battlefield with corpses, the grim remains of those who ignored the advice of Jesus and failed to count the cost. Jesus wants us to count the cost. And I think it's pretty cool of Jesus, pretty honest. He wants us to know what the scoop is up front. There's no bait and switch, no inauthentic presentation. The high call that he explained to his closest friends in, in private, he preaches publicly. To the crowds. And I really think that that's the folly of the seeker-sensitive version of church, which emphasizes easy believism and good feelings at the expense of real discipleship. Essentially, people who do ministry in that way are making one of two mistakes. Either they're leaving it to some other person to communicate the difficult stuff, which seems like an evasion of their responsibility. <clears throat> Or even worse, they're tacitly denying the cost of discipleship altogether and missing that part of the gospel. An old mentor of mine used to say, what you draw them with is what you draw them to. What you draw them with is what you draw them to. In other words, if you draw people to entertainment and religious consumption on the front end, then don't expect to somehow end up with disciples on the back end. The Lord Jesus drew people with the cross, with the message of the cross. He says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He says, anyone who wants to follow me must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. In his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes that when Christ calls a man, he bids him Come and die. That's literally what Jesus did. Come and die. Now, despite all this talk about counting the cost, <clears throat> I want to say that the scriptures are clear that salvation is a free gift of God. We're not earning our salvation by taking up, taking up our cross. Our salvation was won for us when Jesus took up his cross. Perhaps the most famous passage about grace in the entire Bible is coming up next week. It's coming up in the next part of the Gospel of Luke, which is the prodigal son. We'll be preaching on that for two weeks. 
I don't want to belabor this point because I, I don't see avoiding works salvation as, as important as that might be. Um, to be the kind of like constant concern for Jesus or even for Paul that it is for some churches coming out of the Reformation. But I do think it's important to acknowledge when it comes to Luke 14 that there's room for disciples to grow into this vision, right? We're not all there yet. In fact, none of us lives this way all the time. Am I right? If there is, please stand up and come up here and preach to us. <laughs> there's room for weakness in the life of discipleship. There's room for doubt. You know, the Apostle Peter didn't bear his own cross when he denied Jesus three times. But he did later. Even so, the cost of discipleship remains the same. We can't change and alter the plumb line. We can't say north isn't north. We can't look around at other people and say, I guess everyone else is punking out, so I will too. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that brings me to my final point, that Jesus calls us to be salty. I might sound like odd language to us, but salt was incredibly valuable in the ancient world for flavoring food, for preservation, for creating fertilizer. Jesus says here in verse 34 and 35, Salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer, excuse me, it's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Man, that's terrible. You're not even used for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now in Jesus' day, most of the salt of that region came from evaporated pools around the Dead Sea. And it was actually a mixture of salt and other impurities. And the thing is, is if the, if the salt part of it happened to get damp or too wet, only the impurities would remain. And then it became good for nothing. In fact, it was worse than good for nothing. It created like a major disposal problem. It was terrible, terrible for the soil. <coughs> so the imagery is clear. If Jesus' disciples lose their saltiness, if we put other people and other commitments before him, we become good for nothing. Of no use. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Bible commentator Daryl Bach writes... It's tragic that one would lose the opportunity to be used by God. That's tragic. How horrible to be thrown away by God when one could have been useful to Him. One of the best positive descriptions of salty Christianity that I know of comes from, I'm going to try to pronounce this right, the Epistle of Diogenetus, yes, written in the second century. And it contains a description of Christians, uh, these early years of Christianity, what the disciples were like. It says this. I'm going to quote it at length. It says, They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. 
They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet bound in all. They are dishonored and yet their very dishonor, in their very dishonor, are glorified. They are spoken evil against and yet are justified. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, so are Christians in the world. Oh, that someone would write that about Incarnation Tallahassee. The phrase that strikes me most is that last one. What the soul is to the body, so are Christians in the world. Lord Jesus, help us to live with some soul that we might have a salty effect on the things around us. You know who lives with soul? My friend Jeremy. He ended up getting baptized. And I remember the joy of that day. And he's still following Jesus. And he recently married a Christian woman. And he had a wedding that integrated um, his, his faith in Jesus and some of the Jewish traditions. A beautiful thing. He didn't know whether following Jesus would mean losing his parents. And praise the Lord that it didn't. His parents came to his wedding and they understand that he's a baptized follower of Jesus. But Jonah had to count the cost. And I want to close with that this morning. I want to give us a chance to count the cost of discipleship. Whether you're a non-believer and you're just kind of interested, looking into Jesus, you want to know what it's all about. Or a new believer or a lifelong disciple, or somebody who's you know, lapsed and fallen away and coming back, I want to list some of the main barriers, some of the main loves in our day that compete for the love of Jesus. Bible scholar Daryl Bach says, a disciple's attachments are potentially the most destructive thing for discipleship. Persevering with Jesus means being attached to Him, not to possessions. So as I read this list, ask yourself, Am I willing to renounce all that I have to be a disciple of Jesus? Some of these things are good things that God may never call you to actually renounce outwardly, but inwardly, we set them on the altar. So listen as I read this. Are you willing to put Jesus before all relationships? Before boyfriends and girlfriends or son? Or a daughter? Do you have an idolatrous devotion to pleasing your parents? Are you wedded to a certain career in an unhealthy way for your glory? Do you have a vain desire for fame or, or for a perfectly manicured physical appearance? Perhaps you still have a prejudiced view of certain ethnic groups that you inherited from your childhood. Maybe it's a certain lifestyle or comforts that you feel you can't do without. After this week, maybe all of us need to ask ourselves whether we'd be willing to follow Jesus to a place that doesn't have air condition. That would be taking up our cross, would it not? 
Perhaps you're willing to give up, uh, perhaps you're, excuse me, unwilling to give up premarital sex. Or you're trying to hold on to some sexual identity that the scriptures clearly teach against. Maybe it's an addiction to an illegal drug, or even a growing abuse to a legal substance like pain pills or alcohol, and you know it's getting out of hand. Do any of these things in your life have the same place that Jesus should have? Do you have a golem-like obsession for this thing? And you say, this is the thing. This is my precious. This is the thing that Jesus cannot take from my hands. If this is you, I warn you, as Jesus did, that if you love anything more than him, you cannot be his disciple. But I also encourage you, because as I was saying with the kids, the decision is a no-brainer. Wave the white flag and surrender because Jesus is a good and humble king. He's so much better of a leader, so much more kind, so much more good than we are to ourselves. And he waits to put a robe upon us and to set a table before us, saying in the words of Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And labor for that which does not satisfy. Amen.